Good morning, good morning, good morning. Might need some sunglasses this morning. You wouldn't tell that by the temperature outside, but I think I might. So I think we have like one announcement. And so after this service, there is going to be a running club meeting at 1020. And here's the blessing. It's going to be outside. Amen. Like, I mean, the running club, you're not going to run into church. You're going to be running outside. Amen. Come on now. Everybody's with the running club meeting. Yes. Yes. Right. But it is going to be this morning, right after this service, um, we're going to have a running club meeting. I believe it's going to be right behind the sanctuary here. And so it's going to be at 1020. So all those that are interested, please, please, please come and be a part. Amen. Amen. So before we get into it, I just want us to take a second just to pause, if that's okay. I want to pray for us, and I just want to pause our time, and let's just settle in. Let's just come in, because a lot of times, you know, we come into the church, and we're just kind of getting here, right? We're rushing. It's cold. Things are happening. And also, we just come in with stuff, and it's okay. There's, there's no condemnation in this, but sometimes we just come in with stuff on us. So I just want to take just a couple of minutes. And let's just close our eyes and let's just come in to the presence of God. Let's honor him in our presence. I'm going to pray for us this morning and then we're going to get after it. Amen. Is that all right with everybody? Amen. Mm. Father in heaven, we just thank you. We are so grateful and excited for who you are in our life and who you have called us to be. Father, we've come from many different sides of town, different places and spaces, Lord God, to gather right here. And you said where two or three are gathered, you are in the midst of us. So we want to honor your presence this morning with us. We pray, Father God, that as we continue to serve under an open heaven, that, Father God, you ready our hearts and our ears to hear and to receive your word. And that, Father God, whatever may be going on outside of this space right now, we trust you for it. We trust, Father God, that it is all in in your hands. And so we don't have to be concerned about it in this moment. We don't have to look at our phones or check our phones to make sure. But, Lord God, you got it. It's yours. And we submit ourselves over to trusting you that, You have it. And so, Father God, I just pray right now um, for each and every person. I pray, Father God, that sickness, Father God, during this season just be bound up. Thank you for just executing and releasing healing right now in the name of Jesus. Father God, we thank you for as the people that come in, there may be some people that come in who who don't know who Jesus is, or they may be coming in with their own amount of hurt from church and from Christians, Lord God. So, Father God, we just want to, man, we just want to present a safe environment in the name of Jesus, that we can have fellowship, that we can love each other well as we love you. So we just pray over our time together today, Lord God. We pray over each and every person, the family that they represent. And, Father, this is the confidence that we have in you, that anything that we ask according to your will You hear us, and the fact that you hear us, we know that we have the petition that we've asked you for. 
And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. Well, praise the Lord, amen. God is good. All the time. All the time God is good, amen. I, I was, this was what, what a very interesting week this week. Very interesting week, right? And because I was watching the Kansas City-Miami game, I said, man, I'm, I'm going sleeveless today. No sleeves. I didn't wear a coat like most of you when I came in. Yes, I did. But I like to build it up that way. So it was an interesting week because if you're a football fan, man, there was a lot of changes. There were coaches who had been coaching at one team for 24 years, Bill Belichick, who they mutually parted ways. And then you have a coaching legend like Nick Saban, who's won seven national championships, decides to retire and it catches everybody off guard. Pete Carroll steps away and retires and all these things happen. And the interesting thing that I think about being a coach myself is I like to study culture and the type of culture that these coaches really presented. And when you look at Bill Belichick, it's the culture of it's the Patriot way. It's kind of my way and no other way. And it's kind of this do your job approach. And then when I look at Nick Saban, who coached with Bill Belichick, I would say it's it's very similar, but it's different. Because what I would say is, is that Nick Saban, he evolved over time. Why? Because the players evolved. They changed. It wasn't this status quo approach, but culture shifted and culture changed. And instead of just saying, well, hey, man, it's going to be this way, he began to shift and to change with culture. And so I'll tell you the same thing has happened to me throughout the course of my coaching career. I went from kind of being in this coaching culture of it being very transactional. And when I talk about transactional, it's me as a coach really utilizing these young men as pawns. I'm using them as pawns in the success story of Kemp. Because I needed them to execute plays in order to make me look really well. Because see, when I look really well, there's going to be doors that open for me of opportunity. But in 2009, there was a shift in my heart, in my mind. And that shift had me thinking deeper about what the platform of coaching could look like, what it could be. And around this time, man, this is when God really started doing some things in my own life and turning some things around in my life to where I started thinking a little differently. I thought about coaching differently, and I, I just said, man, you know, yes, don't get me wrong. I want to win, and I want to have that type of success, but man, how can I utilize this? Because what I saw was I had my players, and at that time, I was just a coordinator. But when I was coordinating that defense, what I noticed was I started hearing the conversation of some of my players, and they started to sound like me. They started to imitate Coach Boyd's behavior, which I was like, man, that's kind of cool. So it made me think a little bit more about being a little bit more transformational as a coach instead of transactional. And so because I went through this process, this shift, this, this turning around, if you will, in my approach and in my thinking from a cultural perspective, it did something. 
And what began to happen was I started inviting them over to my home. They started to meet my family and eat with us. Sometimes they even spent the night. These things started to happen. And what I began to notice is I began to learn a lot more about them. And they began to learn a lot more about me outside of this transactional culture that exists in coaching. And now because there's this transactional culture in coaching, there, there has become this transactional culture when it comes to players. Like I'm going to go to the school that can get me the most money. NIL-wise. I'm going to go to the school that I see as being successful, that's winning, that's getting um, recruited by different guys. It's become this transactional culture. And we can look around and we can say, man, it's, it's too bad that it's happening this way. But man, in the world, we will have trouble. In the world, we will have trouble. But hey, guess what? People of God, you are not of this world. Praise God. And so me shifting from this transactional way of being to transformational was always predestined for me. I just had to catch up to it. And I had to get myself out of the way. Amen? So today we've been talking about kind of practice, and that's our series, and how are we practicing being imitators of God? And last week, we talked about putting in our practice plan fasting. I'm not here to ask you this morning how many fasted last week, because it has nothing to do with me. That's between you and God. The length of time you did it, that between you and God, all I'm here to do is just to be a messenger And to say, hey, how do we continue to walk with him when we have to build out a practice plan? And the thing that we talked about last week was this this ability to meditate to Haggai, if you will, to growl about the things of God and the things that he wants us to be so intense about. And focused on like, man, my growl this week has been really, really good, especially when you're studying God's word. Because the more I began to meditate on it and this growling came up, the more he began to show me about me. And that's usually what happens. Anytime you're going to preach or teach the word, it like has to affect you first. You go through the experience and it's like, oh, okay, let me, now let's go and discuss it. Let's go and teach on it. Let's go and preach on it. There are at least two people that I'm big fans of in the scriptures. One is David and the other is the apostle Paul. Good old Paul. If you don't mind, I'd like to refer to him as Saul this morning. Because I probably identify a little bit more with Saul in his transactional nature. Because he was transacting things because he felt like that's what he should be doing or that's what he was supposed to do. But then transformational things hit. And then my relationship with David is one because David was anointed king. But it took 15 years for him to actually take the throne. The question becomes, what was David doing? It's almost like knowing that, hey, man, I'm the coach in waiting behind Nick Saban, or better yet, behind Bill Belichick, and he's there for 24 years. 
I don't want to wait that long. I'm impatient. But those 15 years for David were years of growth. It was years of refinement. And so as we look at the Apostle Paul, we know that on his first missionary journey, he went to Corinth and many Gentiles were saved and the church was established. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 2 in order to address some of the problems that was going on in the church at that time. There was a lot of divisiveness. There was just wicked things going on. There was sexual immorality. It was just things happening, and it got back to Paul. And the reason why it got back to Paul, because Paul's identity at that time, not only was he an apostle, but he was a father to the people of Corinth. He established that church. And so I don't know about you, but I know that when I did something wrong, they went and told my parents. And I know when my children are not doing something right, guess what I get? I get an email. It's like, man, we're going to tell your father. And so in this, Paul addresses the children that God has given them the problems that they needed to turn away from, the worldliness, their carnalness, and their immature ways. That in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 21, the Apostle Paul is making a call to turn away, to turn from or to turn around to the church of Corinth. This leads us into the next tool if you will, within our practice plan as we build out our playbook. And it's repentance. How do we practice repentance? How do we practice that in our lives? Now, we all know we had to repent initially to even draw close to God, and we had to go by faith in Jesus. And so here's what I'll tell you is that there's no expiration date on how many times you can repent. There isn't. That's why God is such a good, good daddy. And so as we think about repentance, we're going to go back to kind of our plan of how we're going to do this. This week it changed a little bit. It's a what, how, why, why. Those are the questions that we're going to answer. What, how, why, and why? The first what is, we have to identify and understand what is repentance. What is it? What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind, or I like to say a change of heart, which leads to a change of direction. It's a turning away, if you will, of some of the ways of behavior that I'd behave in and, and really understanding that, man, the sin that I have is now, it is convicting me. So much so that it's grieving me. Because why? It's grieving the Father. And so we can break this kind of down into two parts. The first part begins with a heartfelt conviction of our sins. It is no longer acceptable or okay for me to have sex outside of marriage. And I'll be honest with you, man, that was a hard one for me to kind of come to terms with. 
Because, see, I was practicing just the opposite. But when God really tugged on me and he really got a hold of me, I became convicted. And I'll tell you another thing that I'll expose about myself is I had to understand that me sitting here using substances, whether it's alcohol or marijuana, to cope with my issues, I became convicted about that. It became something that came, became too heavy for me to deal with on my own. So much so, I remember the day that I came home and I was broken, I was beat down, and I was hurt, and I was so convicted that I took a blunt that I just rolled, and I was thinking, man, I'm going to go home, man, I'm going to smoke this, I'm going to feel good. And I remember feeling so convicted about it. I heard the voice of the Lord ask me, son, what are you doing? And he's asking me this because I just came from prayer meeting. Come on now. Just came from prayer meeting. And I went and I flushed it down the toilet. And I hadn't smoked since. I appreciate that, brother. Absolutely. And what I realized is when I felt the conviction, conviction, it became easier. Why? Because I began to understand that, man, it grieved the heart of God to see his son that way. Psalms 51 and 17 says the sacrifices of, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart. God, he not only wants, but he loves our brokenness. Because when I can acknowledge that I'm broken, I allow God to do the best work. And I no longer have to kind of carry this falsehood or this false bravado with me. The second part is, from the heartfelt conviction, I must now then confess my sins openly to the Father. I must now confess my sins openly to God the Father. And this is hard. I know it's hard from experience, but I also know it's hard because when my children have to confess something to me, I see, I see the difficulty of it because of the shame that's attached to it. And they'll kind of mull around and, you know, they kind of say it, but they don't say it to where you can actually hear it clearly. But they just say something and they're kind of looking down. And, and if I can remember right, I can remember, I can remember swaying just like this before the father. I remember I was at the altar and I was just like, man. Because, see, when you're confronted with this shifting that is going on in your heart, 
it's a very uncommon thing that you're not really familiar with. Because, see, I can tell you what I was familiar with. I was always familiar with looking for another way out. I was trying to figure out, man, how can I manipulate or hustle my way out of this one? When we look at Psalms 32, this is David. David wrote this Psalms as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba and murder. Here's what David says in Psalms 32 and 5. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Took David 15 years to take the throne to be king. What was he doing in his obscurity? Because nobody knew David. David was just a brother tending to the sheep. I believe in that obscurity. God was refining him for moments just like this. David is identified as by God as a person after my own heart. Not because he was perfect by no stretch of the imagination. But he did practice repentance. He did practice repentance. This leads us, in knowing all this, this leads us to my next question. Why don't we practice repentance? And what is the end result if we don't? If we don't practice this? And I'm talking not just for people who who don't know who Jesus is, who have repented for sins, but I'm talking about us who are already in the body of Christ, who are Christians, and who say, man, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Because there's still things in life that still hang over us, that attack us, that come at us on a daily basis. And if we're not ready to practice If we're not ready to be imitators of God, then we'll find ourselves, as the old school term would be, backsliding. I think one of the challenges that we have and the reason why we don't practice repentance is because we have a a challenge of distinguishing between conviction and condemnation. See, for a while... Conviction is more of a godly thing. Condemnation is more of a worldly thing. But see, they have similarities. And the similarities that we feel is we feel grief. When I have condemnation, I feel grief. When I have conviction, I feel grief as well. But the grief is different because conviction brings about godly grief that leads to repentance and it leads to joy. Condemnation produces worldly grief that leads to death because there's so much shame and guilt attached to it. And so I think sometimes we're not practicing or I didn't practice repentance simply because I couldn't distinguish between both. 
Because see, the thing that happens when condemnation falls on you, it becomes more about saving your own image versus glorifying God's image. Because, hey, I got to save Kemp. I can't actually say and sit up here as pastor coach and say, hey, I used to get high. Hey, man, I used to really watch a lot of pornography. Hey, I used to have sex outside of marriage. Hey, I used to do all these different things, but I stand up here today because why God has renewed me through the practice of repentance and delivered me and has transformed my life to where I've turned away from that. But see, when condemnation comes on us, it becomes all about saving myself and my image versus glorifying God. Because I'm consumed with what are people going to say? How am I going to be received in the city or in the community? Hey, I want to keep my stature and my good standing. Hey, I'm going to come to church when I get right. I'm going to come to church when I get right. I'm going to come back when I get right. I'm going to, I'm going to go talk to Pastor Brian or Pastor Coach when, man, I feel like I got this figured out. Here's, hey, newsflash, you're never going to get it figured out outside of him. You will for a moment, and it'll feel good. It'll be temporal. Because temporalness is like it's temporary. It's those short-term energy-relieving behaviors, those stirbs that I've always talked about. In an essay by Sam Storms on repentance, he says it like this. Our reluctance to repent can often result in divine discipline. As David reflected on his sin and the season during which he kept it silent, he portrays the impact of of his transgression in physical terms. This is what David says in Psalms 32 and 3. For when I kept silent or I kept my transgression secret, because we all know we can keep secrets from God. He goes on to say, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, when you're carrying the weight of your transgression or your sin, you're trying to carry it because you're going to come once you get right. Or let me say it like this. I'm going to come to church once I get right. I'm going to repent once I feel like everything's okay here from a worldly perspective. Man, that causes heaviness. Heaviness. I think we sung it about a little bit this morning during our worship when we talk about the yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage is not an image that I want for myself. But see, that's what happens when we don't practice repentance. Our transgressions get yoked around us. It covers us so much so that it brings about heaviness, so much so that it brings about physical ailments, but not only physical ones, but also mental and emotional ones as well. Because see, guilt and shame begins to produce bondage which may even produce depression, which may even produce a sense of being anxious or having anxiety because, or even paranoia because I'm afraid that you're going to find out about who I am and I don't want you to because I'm trying to save or protect my image. 
And this is exactly what David is saying. When he looks at this, he, he goes on to say, when I kept silent, when I kept silent, when I tried to hide this from you, God. But not only when I try to hide it from you, not only did I commit adultery, but I committed murder. And see, sometimes this is what happened when transgression upon transgression upon transgression happens and I, and I fail to repent. I just keep doubling down. I just keep doubling down on it. One thing that, you know, we've always practiced facing on our home and these are kind of like the two commandments. Yes, we're going to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. But the one thing I tell them as add-ons is you will respect your mother. And you will not lie. Because I said, if you're lying, then I can't help you. But if you tell me the truth, then we can come out of it. And sometimes, I'm not saying that my kids have done this. Maybe their father has done this. But man, I've allowed a lie to beget another lie. Here's what I used to do. Can I talk to you this morning? I remember when I was growing up, report cards wasn't a printout. Anybody remember that? And like they actually wrote it. Well, this was fantastic for a clever young man like me. Because I knew how F's can become A's. Because, see, you would make the little F, the teacher would make the F, and then I would say, man, let me find this pencil or this pen and just make a line coming down there. And I was in. Went home skipping to my father. Because my father, as I told you all growing up, he was a hard man. And he knew when report cards came out. And I was like, man, here, looked at it, boom. Hey, man, look, I'm out. I'm going to play. Three days later, I don't know how it happened, but there was a revised report card that came in the mail. And praise God, I'm standing before you today. <laughs> Amen. Amen. But see, once I told that lie, there was another lie. Well, dad, that's, that's just wrong. The teacher, the teacher, and that's what happens. We begin to spiral. And this is what David is talking about, man, because I kept silent and I didn't come to you, father. I didn't come to you. I didn't trust you enough to know that you wasn't going to allow this to define me. And we talk here at Garden City a lot about our identity. And many times we try to keep things from the Father because we think the Father's going to treat us like the world and he's going to say, hey, this is now your identity. You are a transgressor. You will be nothing but a transgressor. But God says, no. My transgressions to the Lord and he forgave the guilt of my sin. God is not keeping a spiritual scorecard on us. He's not seeing how many times Kempis came and had to repent about this. He's not doing that because he's a good, good father. Which leads us to our next question. Why should we practice repentance? Well, I've, I've given some examples of the thing, but let me just, let me summarize this by saying our sincere pursuit and faithful embrace of repentance leads to the greatest blessing of all. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
I'm no longer in the yoke of bondage of guilt or saying, but he has forgiven me and I give him and I allow him to forgive me when I bring him my transgressions. And I can openly confess it to him. Psalms 32 and 1 says, How joyful is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is uncovered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. He wipes it clean. When we repent, we confront our sin and that produces restoration and growth. God will remove our guilt just like he did for David. As I talked about in the beginning, the transformational process versus the transactional one. And really what makes a good leader, or I would say in this essence, uh, a really good coach, is one that can recognize their own shortcomings and their own faults. I told you I kind of shifted or switched to be more this transformational coach. Which now I'm more like a father coach. Because I see these young men as my children, as my kids. And when I first started coaching, I had so many of them say, man, you ain't my daddy. I'm like, you absolutely right, I ain't. And thank God for that. So as I've gotten older, and I've allowed God to turn some things around in my heart, I hope that they see me as their father. I hope that they see me as one that loves them so much, man, that I would give myself. Because even before I had my own kids, I've been fathering since I was 18 years old because that's when I started coaching. But I didn't look at it that way. But that transformation had to click and had to happen. And no different than Saul. Saul was a transactional Pharisee. What was he transaction? Well, the law for the persecution of Christians and the burning of the church and the mockery of Jesus until one day a shift or a change or a turning away happened to him. And we all know, most of us know the story about the road of Damascus, but also the turning and the shifting around that Paul now had become the Apostle Paul. Instead of Saul, the persecutor of the brethren, he became the Apostle Paul being sent to the Gentiles to give the good news of the gospel. So when The Apostle Paul says, hey, I call you to repentance. And when you read that section of of 1 Corinthians 3 and 18 to 21, he's calling to repentance because why? They got too consumed and caught up with their own image, with their own way of thinking, with their own wisdom. He's trying to usher them back in as a good father would into the fold. And what Paul says continually is this thing. He says it in Corinthians 4, 4 and 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ 
Jesus through the gospel, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Now, Paul is not saying this because he's arrogant or he's he's rude or he's shrewd. No, he's saying this because why? These were Gentile people who were so far removed from Christ. The Gospels have not been written, so they didn't know about the life and the ministry of Jesus. So what Paul says is, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross every day, and I'm asking you to imitate and be imitators of me as I what? As I follow Jesus. Because if I have to be the one, then I'm willing to do it for the sake of the Gospel and for the sake of Christ. I coach a lot of young men who have either been hurt by the church, they've been hurt by religion, and so I don't come in talking about Jesus, but I say, just imitate me. If you don't see Coach Boy cussing, you don't cuss either. If you don't see Coach Boy getting high smoking weed, then you don't get high smoking weed either. If you don't see Coach Boy disregarding his daughter, his wife, then don't you do that either. Just be imitators of me as I follow Jesus. But it's a practice. And there's steps. But I would have never had the courage or the thought to even say that in the transactional culture that I was coaching in. Ben, come on back up. If today you're here and you don't know Jesus, or you might be here today and you know Jesus, but you know, man, I've, I've gone through some tough times and, man, I'm just trying to figure out some things and I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to get back. What I want you to tell you this morning, and I can tell you this with confidence, he is waiting and he is here for you. If there wasn't anybody in this sanctuary but you, God would be here with you and ready to minister to you and ready to hear all the stuff. Why? Because Jesus tore down the veil so that we can have this relationship, so we can talk to God the Father about all of our stuff. And he already knows it. He just wants our open confession. Because when we can confess our faults to him, the word of God says he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, that's a good, good daddy. And let me say this to you. I apologize for whatever the world has tried to put on you. I apologize for the hurt that sometimes come that we experience in the world. But he told us in the world we'll have trouble. But he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. And if he did, then that means we have. Praise God. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the comfort of your word and for the comfort of brothers and sisters in the faith.
Lord God, I pray and I ask for a spirit of conviction that, were, that will resound louder than the self-imposed condemnation that, that will try to take center stage. Because in you, there is no condemnation, there is no guilt. There is no shame. And I pray, Father God, for anybody who has felt that at the hands of themselves or others of this world, I pray for comfort for them. I pray for peace for them, Lord God. And not just any peace, but your peace, your tranquil state of being, your peace. And your peace will cause us not to lean into our own understanding. I pray, Father God, that you give us all the courage to acknowledge you. And once that acknowledgement happens, we feel freedom. We feel a lightness, no longer a heaviness. And we get to experience your forgiveness. I pray that, Father God, for every young man that I've ever coached, I pray that they find their identity in you. Not in this world. Not in accolades, not in their physical prowess, but in you. And I pray, Father God, that you allow us to father and the mother those who are lost well, just as Paul did that we can acknowledge and admonish one another in love. And thank you, Father. Another reason why we practice repentance is because it is a form of worship for us. The Psalms are a book of worship. David was worshiping God as he repented. When we worship, there is a heaviness that comes off of us, that frees us. Because it is a transaction of transformation with him. And that's what he wants to do, to take us from glory to glory. We pray these things in the awesome name of Jesus. And we all said, amen.